Hey, it's Todd coming to you from the uh, Sports Library and Spirituality Library also in here in Verona, Wisconsin, and my apartment. And I'm crunching some serious numbers on this uh, preview uh, for the baseball preview. World Classic is coming up this week, too, and that'll be interesting. It's always fun to watch. Um, it's very competitive, and that's what I like about it. And, uh, you know, there's some damn good players, too. That's all each row has found. Um, we have to remember. We have to take a look at the uh, the Rays. This this freaking franchise is awesome when I think about it. And you know I went through here and you know as a D Rays are just ridiculously horrible. I wonder why? Because they were called the Devil Rays, the Devil. Once they crossed off the Devil, then the Rays took off. And um, man, I was I can't believe how good these guys are. And they're going to have an awesome season this year. And, you know, it, and I was looking at it, too, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, all this team needs to do is, is just keep playing because, you know, their, their system is loaded with great players. You know, when you got Wander Franco playing shortstop, I and mean, he is just going to be blowing up this year. Um, you know, I'm just so he can stay away from this injury bug. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it, Joe Madden is the guy that was a, uh, had a 517 win and loss percentage, too. And, you know, 08, they lost the World Series to the Phillies, and Ryan Howard went off, and so did Jimmy Rollins. But the thing is, is that, you know, it's in 2020, they had a 667 winning percentage. They're 40 and 20 in that, uh, Oh, the stupid Corona limited play, and uh, which is too bad because it really put a freaking uh, halt on everything, including and anything to do with sports. It just collapsed it. But anyways, now we're out of the now we're going through the the pro. This, we're in the PM time of the Corona, so we got a lot of sports going on here. Which is fabulous. So, anyways, what I got is that uh, Jason Adam was uh, former Toronto Blue Jay, Kansas City Royal, and Cubs. Uh, he had an awesome year last year. He's and I would imagine that he's probably going to be. He's probably going to do real well this year on the pen too. I don't, I, it's going to be hard for him to keep up with last year. I know that. In a 1.56 ERA, 63 innings, 75 Ks, and a whopping .76 whip. Blue Jays get some pitching, and they are just able to turn it into, into studs. Sean Armstrong, 61 and two-thirds, 66 Ks, 1.35 whip. You know, when you're looking at a reliever... It does you absolutely no good to look at wins and losses, but also ERA. Because the ERA can just get infill, just get blown up too. You know, if you go out and you pitch one third of an inning and give up seven runs, you know what that can do to your ERA? You know, so that's why it's so important if you look at the whip. And uh, Shane Boz was hurt for quite a bit last year, and he still had a 1.33 whip and 30 Ks. And, 
And uh, yeah, but he had a 5.80 ERA. ERA. Well, he had a 1.33 whip. That's what I'm talking about. Um, Jalen Beeks, 2 and 3, 2.8 ERA. He was uh, 61 on a 70, and he was 61 in any 70 case. Yanni Chirinos. 241 innings, 205 Ks, 70, I'm sorry. Yeah, that was 205 Ks for his career at 70 Ks last year. And he was hurt quite a bit last year. And I would think that he's probably going to be in the starting rotation or in the bullpen. But I guarantee he's going to be on the team. Garrett Clevenger, 6 feet 1, 220 pounds, 4.39 ERA, 23 innings, 32 Ks. Once again, a .91 whip. That's effectiveness. Zach, Zach Eflin, I believe, is going to be in the rotation. He's a former Philly, six foot six, two hundred twenty pounds, and uh, seventy-five and two thirds, sixty-five Ks. He had a uh, one point one three ERA. And this is a guy that I like too. I like his name, but also he's here's Pete Fairbanks, and he's not from Alaska, I don't think. He's six feet six, two hundred twenty, two hundred twenty-five pounds. These guys are big, big men. Twenty-four innings, thirty Ks, .67 WHIP. He did real well in the playoffs too. Josh Fleming has been. Uh, He's he's been off and on, but he's he's been a good he's taken a lot of innings and starting, and uh, he will be probably back doing it again. Tyler Glass now six feet eight, two hundred and twenty five pounds. These guys ought to be playing basketball. They got a great team in the offseason. They allow them to play basketball. One hundred and six career games, got a point nine zero WHIP, but he was on the DL for six weeks. And I believe it was a a lat strain, I believe. But this guy, this guy came over for the Cubs in that Chris Archer trade. What a joke! You know, I, I remember laughing at that trade, going, "Why would you give up Glass now and uh, give up him, and then give up the, that outfielder I cannot think of?" That ah, shoot. Anyways, I don't even want to brought it up. But anyways, Tyler Glass now is 106 career games, .90 whip. Um, but yeah, this Chris Archer trade is just a bad, bad deal for Pirates. People look at the people look at the Josh Hader trade for the Brewers, and they, I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, at least they got some, uh, at least they got some buddies in there, you know. And this Chris Archer trade worked the other way. Man. I, I just don't understand what people see in Chris Archer, and I never will. I think it's, I think he's just over Ballywood is what his problem is. And uh you know it's Andrew Kitteridge. Kitteridge. Yeah, Kitteridge. 3.15 ERA. Uh fourteen hundred and fifty innings pitched, seventeen games for his career. Uh, 17 games pitched last year at 1.23 whip. And, and, Shane McClanahan, 
166 innings pitch, 194 Ks, 0.93 e whip. Um, in 20, uh, his top pitch is the his uh, he's got a good fastball. He's a lefty. Um, he was a stud last year in fantasy for for people. He had, he throws a hundred plus miles per hour. He did that 16 times and uh, 16 times last year. Get the best changeup on the team. Can you imagine a guy throwing 100 miles an hour and he's got the best changeup on the team? That's where the whips are coming from, or the whips are coming from. Uh, another guy here is uh, Drew Rasmussen, 146 innings, 125 Ks. He had a 1.10 whip, and he was picked in the sixth round by the Brewers out of Oregon State. He had a he had a major arm troubles his uh, senior year of his of uh, Oregon State or his last year there. I don't know if it's senior year or not, but what happened was he was he was supposed to be a first round pick. But the arm trouble set him back, and the Brewers took a chance on him, which is great. They developed him in their their farm system, but then they unloaded him. But they did get Willie Thomas back. So you gotta get, sometimes you gotta give something to get something. I just, I like this guy's arm, and I really, really wish they had never. There's a lot of other people they could have gotten rid of. Um. This, uh, but this Drew Rasmussen is a stud too for fantasy. Take a look at him because he had 125 Ks, 146 innings, and uh, you know he's going to be getting a lot of calls because I believe he was, yeah, 146 innings is really good, really good. You know, and the record doesn't matter. I think he's 11 to seven or something. Who cares? What matters is this guy can pitch and how he pitches and how he performs. You know, because sometimes you're just not going to get the runs, no matter what. And, uh, he's still the guy's Bradley's the first round, a number one prospect. Uh, I believe his name is Todd Bradley. Not Todd, Todd Bradley. <laughs> he's a number one prospect, right handed pitcher. 1.04 whip. He's another guy that. He's another guy that's a stud too. Um, they're gonna be able to. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if he's gonna develop into a frontline pitcher this year, or not. it looks like he's developing already. What I'm saying is, I don't know if they're gonna be able to uh, put him in their rotation. It just depends on injuries, and the whole thing depends on injuries too. So when I say that, I think I think the Yankees are gonna win it again. And the Rays are going to come in, come in second in the AL Wild Card, AL East Wild Card. What's going to happen is that it's all up to injuries. That's what. So, I mean, could you imagine the Yankees with Aaron Judge going down with an injury? I mean, we've seen it before. The Yankees do not do real well when he's down, because that's one big 62 homer blow, 62 homer void in your in your lineup when he's not hit, when he's not in there, and when he's hurt. He's not performing at top, and it kind of takes the fizzle all to sizzle. And anyways, 
So, Jeffrey Springs, another one. Left-hander, 264 and two-thirds, 298 Ks for his career, a 1.28 whip. It's out of Appalachian State. I did not know they had a good uh, baseball program, but I guess they do. And what happened up with this guy is the 30th round pick of the Rangers. So he went he he was with the Rangers, then with the Red Sox, and then to the Rays. And you know, he really pitched good again last year. And this guy he's came he's coming to his own. You know, the the Rays were patient, stuck with him, worked with him, got him throwing the ball. Got him throwing the ball in a way that uh controls strikes. He's a stud. For fantasy. And I know he blessed a lot of rosters last year with fantasy too. Um the only name, Christian Bethencourt is a is a good receiver. He's eleven home runs. He's got uh yeah, six ninety two OPS. He's been one of the uh he's been one of the solutions for the raise behind the plate because Francisco Mejia, Mejia is uh, six homer, six forty-five OPS. Played for the East. Was that the Padres before the Indians? But you know he was a he was hitting four hundred for the uh, in the minors for the Indians in uh, A ball. And what happened was you know and it was the whole his whole year is hitting four hundred. You know, it was like up and down and never hitting below four never hitting below four hundred. So he's like he was a stud of was everybody's like, this guy's gonna be so awesome. But you know what happened? He was supposed to go the Brewers were training Jonathan Lucroy in that year and uh, I believe it was sixteen. But they're trading Jonathan Lucroy to the Indians. And they're gonna get Mejia back and uh And a couple more outfielders. And what happened was, he uh, he he didn't. Jonathan Lucroy backed out on the trade. He used his ten day ten day uh, window thing and said, "I don't want to go there." And but uh, anyway, I think the Indians got bust anyways because Lucroy's just going down in the dumps. Um. What? So, anyways, let's go on to something else here. Let's go on to first base. Isaac Paredes, 5'11", 213 pounds, unless he ate a steak dinner last night, then he's probably up to about 215. Um, 739 OPS. He had 20 home runs. And he's a uh, career 690 guy. Bad ball in play is uh, 195. So I went back and looked at it. 195 is horrible. I mean, it's just, I mean, if it wasn't hitting a home run, he was not hitting very well at all. And, uh, you know, if he was getting on base and stuff like that, well, 195 without, without, home, without home runs and uh, based on balls, hit by pitches, that sort of thing, you know, it says a lot. And, um, but he's also, he's also got some big home run bat too. So, 
And he can play quite a few different positions besides first base. He can play second or third, and he can play in the outfield. And uh, I don't know how good he is at in the outfield or the second or third, but anyways, he's got a good bat. He's, got, he's a good pinch hitter. The other guy, too, is uh, former Cub Harold Ramirez. And the Cubs treated him to the Rays last year. I believe it was a spring training. 5'10", 232 pounds. He's a stocky dude. He's got six home runs. He's got 747 OPS. And he's got 725 OPS for his career. What happened was, I was reading about this on there about him. Oh, no, it's the other guy here. I'm sorry. It's Yandy Diaz that I was thinking of. Good fantasy guy. Uh, Plays third base or first base. Six foot two, two fifteen. Nine home runs last year. Eight twenty four OPS. Plus he's playing in that uh, ping pong uh, tropical dome thing. It's just not exactly a real pleasant thing to watch a ball game from. From what I hear. Yeah. I look at him, and I was reading about this thing when he came over. He got two times he was trying to get over here with his friend, and uh, they had to go to prison. Not prison. They had to go to jail because they were trying to leave the country, and they got kept getting caught. So anyways, the third time, they laid in the weeds for a day. They had his raft, and the raft, they got on the raft and took off at night, I do believe. But they were cruising and they looked down and there were sharks going right along the boat or the raft. And they got, they did get to, uh, they did get to get to the Dominican Republic. And <laughs> I don't know if I was, it'd be pretty scary if I was uh, on a raft and you looked down and saw some sharks. And you're thinking, I don't know if I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to make it in the big leagues or not, but. I've got good feelings as long as I didn't get attacked by sharks. I got good luck going. I got some definite karma. So, anyways, second base, Brandon Lowe, 691 OPS in 2022. He was hurt. The year before, he was, wow. He was awesome the year before. 830 OPS, uh, 39 home runs, 99 RBIs at second base. Hey. I'd be all over him in fantasy if I played fantasy, but I'm just saying, hey, get on him quick. Um, at third base, like I said, it's, it's Diaz, Paredes, and uh, I believe Harold Ramirez can play some third. So that's the way they're gonna. That's the way they're gonna go. And, and you know, it's I tell you whose time it is. You know, if it's Miller time in Milwaukee, it's Franco time in in Tampa Bay. And it's time for this guy to produce. So expect big things out of him. Uh, you know, it's he got hurt last year and he was gone for the whole year. He had 745 uh, OPS last year, but he was struggling. He had an 810 OPS the uh, the in 21 and 2021. So, but yeah, get all over him in, in fantasy because he's gonna explode. And um, you're going to be, this, this, oh, this Rage team is so tough, so talented. And, um, yeah, they, 
I wrote down some key stats here to, uh, you know, this, this is amazing with what's going on with this team, you know, and um, like I said, they've had eight playoff appearances and four 85% wins, and that's, and when they started out with the D-Rays, they were last place, last place, last place. I don't re- I remember Lou Pinello being the manager. I remember Wade Boggs was with him for a while. And the luck was not there. And I'm glad they changed their name because I'm a spiritual dude and I don't like this the devil god thing going on. This devil crap going on, that's for sure. Anyways, baseball is so much better with the Rays instead of the devil Rays. Upfield, Randy Arizona. Arizona. Mr. Postseason of 2020. But you know something? Is that he's he's continued his, he's continued on with consistency. And he was a former Cub who got sent to the Cardinals. I'm sorry, yeah, he's a former Cub that got over to the Cardinals and then over the over there to the race. And the thing was is they didn't know what they had until they he <laughs> got buried. He had seven home runs when he was with the uh, Rays in the uh, up until the postseason in 2020. And uh, in limited play. He had a 772 OPS last year, 20 homers, 32 stolen bases, and 586 at-bats. And I believe he had 516 at bats the year before. He had pretty much the same stats. Um, but yeah, he reminds me of uh, those stats. Remind me of somebody like somebody like uh, oh Bernie Williams for one thing, you know. And and somebody I, I think back to the old days. I don't know if you guys remember who a guy named Gary Maddox. And uh, he's got the same stats very much, but he doesn't have the same body type. Max was real lean, real fast, and I believe he was about 6'4", 6'3", or 6'4", but he was, I love those old Philly teams too. So I'm just, I'm a retro head, but I love I love the current too. So, you know, there's the guy who just blows me away. That was supposed to be this hot prospect and uh, for the Padres, and you know, he got, he, he Manuel Margot. He's got a 700 OPS, and that was, that's good for him, but that's right where, you know, that's, that's average. He's not below average, he's not above average. That's just plain and simple average. And, you know, like I say, I say out here too, his Padres Price prospect, he's average, but he's not a star. So I, I believe he's, I believe his last days are coming as a Ray. I believe they're going to they're dump him because they also got a Jose Siri. They picked him up from the uh, Astros last year. And he had a really good year last year. He had a good year the year before too. Last year he was very, uh, I don't know if it's hurt or what, but he, 
He was king of the strikeouts. He struck out last year like 100. 300 at bats, he struck out 100 times. Oh, man. Um, so, yeah, he, he still had a 1.3 war. And, uh, you know, that's wins above replacements. So that's not all that bad. And, you know, and, and he had nine, he was a, OPS was 956 the year before. So maybe he's hurt or something, or his eyes weren't seeing right, or he's fighting with his girlfriend or something. But he's an awesome center fielder. He can really go, he's an awesome center fielder, but he's really good on defense, too. Well, he's got to get moving. He's 27 years old. And, uh, looks like the Astros gave up on him. Anyways, Harold Ramirez. Harold Ramirez is a, uh, is a solid player. He's, he broke into it. He was with the Indians and the Cubs, like I said before. And, you know, it's, it's good when you can, when you got guys you can move around, especially this guy because he's getting hit. He had really that's first year. But also Luke Rayleigh is another guy too that you know he was a California All-Star, Texas League All-Star. Last year he was with the Dodgers and then he went over to the uh, Rays. And what happened too is he he's provided a he's gonna give them a good stick off the bench. He's you know, he hit only one eighty. 186 or something last year for Toronto or Tampa Tampa I'm sorry small sample size but yeah he's been getting moved around but just keep an eye on him because Luke really is gonna be a uh, he's got good size and he's got good he's got good speed and he's got a good glove too so he reminds me of a uh, he reminds me of a lot of he reminds me of um he reminds me of, I don't know if you guys remember uh, Gabe Gross for the Brewers, but he was, all, he was a pretty decent player. He's got, you know, but he was also Auburn's quarterback. But anyways, that, that's just nonsense. Anyways, top prospects I have. I, I already talked about Todd Bradley and uh, said quite a bit. But here's, here's another guy that's a fantasy stud. Keep an eye out for him, too. Because he can play, he's another guy that can play second base, third base, uh, first base, power hitter, double to triples is thing. He's Australian, he lifted the Australian league up when he's 16. And, uh, you know, he's another fantasy stud. He's gonna make, he's gonna be on the race. I've been seeing some stuff about him too. And, and uh, what they're saying about him at camp and, and how they love to watch him play. And, uh, you know, he's, he's got the, uh, he saw, he's very young. He's been, when I was looking at it too, he's like, he was coming up, he was like five years behind these guys, you know, and, and experience. And he's been up through the whole system and, you know, it seemed like, and he's hit wherever he's been. You know, he's, I don't think he's that great of a defender. That's why he's second base, third base, so on and so forth. But he can get the job done. But he's gonna win. He's gonna he's gonna live on a stick, and uh, you know he's gonna be he's gonna do a nice job and for Tampa in the uh, in that dome. Um, cause he's gonna hit him. He's gonna hit for the power. This guy is this kid is just he's 
he's strong too from what I was reading he's, he's lifting serious weights since he's 12 years old he's been pumping iron um, so that, that's why he's in so good at shape and, uh, you know it's going to be fun to watch his Carson Will Carson Williams guy coming off too he's He's, he's a lot of like Evan Longoria, third baseman that got switched, that got traded over to uh, San Francisco. Um, in the uh, scouts are saying, uh, you know, on an 80 scale, he's a 45 hitter, which isn't great. Powers a 55, but he's, he's developing. He's got a 95 mile per hour pitching arm. And that would translate over to his uh, playing shortstop, too. So, anyways, we got another guy here. It's Kyle Mazzardo. He's a left-handed masher. Washington State stud. Excellent hitter. Fielding is uh, not very solid. And his run speed, he's a little bit on the slow side, too, so... He's gonna be living off his uh, stick also, and he's gonna—he's a big prospect for him. The other guy is that I'm looking at too for being a prospect is a gentleman named Mason Montgomery, left-handed pitcher, 55 fastball, 50 50s uh, slider, out of Texas Tech, and you know, loaded the system is. So that's this system is gonna be. It's going to be fun to watch is that, uh, you know, they're prepared for you to have guys that get injured because they got guys right behind them. And then they're going to make trades. And then they're going to load up the system even more because or they're going to have the major league team be even better because of the system. Because they can make the trades and they can, uh, you know, they're not going to be giving up. They're not going to be giving up the whole season with the trade. So, anyways, if nobody else has told you that they love it today, I do. And that's with the power of love. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. Hi. Greetings from the Sports and uh, Spirituality Library here in Verona, Wisconsin, in my apartment. I'm Todd, and I am definitely an alcoholic, so, uh, you know, I consider this one, one of the, uh, a very fun thing to, for me to do with 12-step working, you know, being laid up and I'm not feeling well and stuff like that, and with my back situation, I'm, you know, I'm pretty much stuck, I'm pretty much a homebody, but I just need to turn out work for the alcoholic out there who can grab a hold of this and save their life and they're struggling so much that I see on uh, when I listen to the all night 24 hour meeting from international 24 hour meeting that they have and uh, that was originated in New Zealand but the thing about that is there's so many desperate cries for help on that Um, and it's just like so it, it, it reminds me of this the Last part of chapter, uh, there is a solution. Is the last couple pages that I'm going to read, uh, and you know, I hopefully my friends can grab a hold of this and uh, develop their develop develop a defense against that drink. If that's out there against that relapse, that just overpowers you. 
been there before and I've done that before and it's not fun, it's horrible. Alright, here's a terrible dilemma in which our friend found himself when he had the extraordinary experience, which we already have told you, made him a free man. We in our turn sought the same escape without the desperation of a drowning man. What seemed at first a flimsy reed has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. A new life has been given us, or if you prefer, a design for living that really works. The distinguished American psychologist, William James, in his book, Varieties of Religious Experience, indicates a multitude of ways in which men have discovered God. We have no desire to convince anyone that there is only one way by which faith can be acquired. If what we have learned and felt and seen and seen many means anything at all, it means that all of us, whatever our race, creed, or color, are the children of a living creator with whom we may have formed a relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as we are willing and honest to try. Those having religious affiliations will find here nothing disturbing to their beliefs or ceremonies. There is no friction among us over such matters. We think it no concern of ours what religious bodies of our members identify themselves with as individuals. This, this should be an entirely personal affair which each one decides for himself in the light of past associations or his present choice. Not all of us join religious bodies, but most of us favor such memberships. In the following chapter, there appears an explanation of alcoholism as we understand it. Then a chapter addressed to the agnostic, Many who once were in the class are now among our members. Surprisingly enough, we find such convictions no great obstacle to a spiritual experience. Further on, clear-cut directions are given showing how we recovered. These are followed by 42 personal experiences. I'm going to go on reading, but I really... I sit here and I think about the uh, the confusion that people come in there under when they're in meetings about how we do this stuff and how many times I've heard how do we do it you know what do you do you know and it's got clear-cut directions it's called how it works and you know it it, it just takes time for people to grab a hold of this and clear their clear the fog you know, it's in their mind. Because it took me about 10 years. <laughs> I'm not joking either. Each individual in the personal stories describes in his own language and from his point of view the way he established a relationship with God. These gave a fair cross-section of our membership and a clear-cut idea of what has actually happened in their lives. We hope no one will consider these self-revealing accounts in bad taste. Our hope is that many alcoholic men and women 
desperately in need will see these pages and we believe that it is only by fully disclosing ourselves and our problems that they will be persuaded to say yes I am one of them too I must have this thing and then we go on to the uh, more about alcoholism and I know I've read that part before but reality is too is I needed to uh, to go through it again because it's so important most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics no person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Now, I'm going to go back on something. I'm sorry. Page 30 from the big book. I just went into that uh, part, and I didn't even say where, that, where I was coming from. Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And this is from Alcoholics Anonymous World Services Incorporated in New York City, 2001. And uh, there's there's so many different uh, books out here too. You know, it's 12 Steps, 12 Traditions, Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age, a brief history of AA's first two decades. As Bill sees it, formerly the AA way of life. Selected writings of AA's co-founders, Doctor Good, Doctor Bob, and the Good Old Timers uh, biography with recollections of early AA in the Midwest. Bill W.'s life story, how the AA message reached the world, in a book called Pass It On. Daily Reflections, a book of reflections by AA members for AA members. <laughs> that's a little, there's a little tricky saying that. Experience, Strength, and Hope. Stories from the first three editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, this is a book I've been reading, too, about reading. Reading to everybody about the... There's so many good stories in that book, too, that have lost the uh, circulation. Uh, Living Sober, Practical Suggestions Heard at Meetings. This is in the Yellow Book. And it gives you a... Uh, it talks about having a life of uh, living in plan, having problems, getting, you know, doing things with your sobriety. It doesn't, you know, outside of the meetings. AA in prison, inmate to inmate. I, uh, I like this. To his former grapevine articles by people who found AA in prison. So, anyways, what's going on? You're going to hear a cat just hollering. You're going to have to ignore her. She's just crazy. She's got a problem. She just, uh, she said, man, she's an alcoholic right now. <laughs> Most of us have been willing to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. 
We learned that we had full, to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real, real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt that time we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitable, followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Only over any considerable period we get worse, never better. We're like men who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which will make alcoholics our kind like other men. We have tried every imaginable remedy. In some instances, there has been brief recovery, followed always by a still worse relapse. Physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree there is no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. You know, this part of a, uh, for the early beginning of this chapter is often read at meetings instead of chapter five is to get through the monotony, read something different because of the, uh, it gives people a, a chance to listen to this. And, you know, the thing about the, uh, when then we read the, uh, Chapter 5 at the beginning of the meeting, what happens usually is, and I do it too, we just zone out, starts thinking about other things. Because we've heard that thing so many times, and the problem is, is that I don't, I still don't have it memorized. I don't plan on memorizing it either, it's in the book. So if I want to have something that, you know, I have to go back there and find it, I go back and find it, it's the same thing with the steps. The steps are in the, the steps are up on the wall, you know. I I live them, but I couldn't tell you them word for word. I don't ever plan on things, too, because I'll sit there and I'll screw it all up in my mind, and I'll never go back. I won't go back and look at it, and I don't want to find myself with a drink in my hand besides Diet Pepsi. So that's the thing that I get around to with with uh, I like Chapter Three, and that's why I like Chapter Three. More about alcoholism. Despite all we can say, many who are real alcoholics are not going to believe that they're in that class. Every form of self-deception and experimentation, they will try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule. Therefore, non-alcoholic. If anyone who is showing the inability to control his drinking can do the right about face and drink like a gentleman. Our hats are off to him. Heaven knows we have tried hard enough and long enough. 
to drink like other people. Um, I don't know what the other people are like, but I know one thing that's going to happen if I go drink. It's going to be one hell of a rough ride, and it's going to be going to be have nasty impact on others around me. Um, here are some here are some of the methods we have tried. Drinking beer only, limiting the number of drinks, never drinking alone, never drinking in the morning, drinking only at home, never having it in the house, never drinking during business hours, drinking only at parties, switching from scotch to brandy, drinking only natural wines, agreeing to resign if ever drunk on the job, Taking a trip, not taking a drip, trip, swearing off forever with and without a solemn oath, taking, take more physical exercise, reading inspirational books, going to health farms and sanitariums, accepting voluntary commitment to asylums. We could increase the, increase the list ad infinitum. We do not, we do not like to pronounce any individual as alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you are honest with yourself about it. It may be worth a bad case of jitters if you get a full knowledge of your condition. Though there is no way of proving it, we believe that early in our drinking careers, most of us could have stopped drinking. (coughs) But the difficulty is that few alcoholics have enough desire to stop while there is yet time. We have heard of a few instances where people who shared definite signs of alcoholism were able to stop for a long period because of an overpowering desire to do so. Here's one. A man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He was very nervous in the morning after these bouts, quieted himself with more liquor. He was ambitious to succeed in business but saw that he wouldn't get nowhere if he, if he drank at all. Once he started, he had no control, whatever. He made up his mind that unless, until he had been successful in business, had retired, he would not touch another drop. An exceptional man, he remained bone dry for 25 years and retired at the age of 55 after a successful and happy business career. And he fell victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic has that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. Out came his carpet, slippers, and a bottle. In two months, he was in the hospital, puzzled and humiliated. He tried to regulate his drinking for a while. 
making several trips to the hospital meantime. Then gathering all his forces, he attempted to stop altogether and found he could not. Every means of solving his problem, which money could buy, was at his disposal. Every attempt failed. Though a robust man at retirement, he went to pieces quickly and was dead within four years. It's just thinking to myself that he lasted for quite a long time for four years with this disease. And uh, this case all contains a powerful lesson. Most of us have believed that if we remained sober for a long stretch, we could thereafter drink normally. But here's a man who at 55 years found he was just where he had left off at 30. We have seen the truth demonstrated again and again. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we are in short time bad as ever. If we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind nor any lurking notion that someday he will be immune to to alcohol. Young people may be encouraged by this man's experience to think that they can stop, as he did, on their own power, on their own willpower. We doubt if many of them can, can do it, because none will really want to stop and hardly one of them because of the peculiar mental twist already acquired. We'll find he can win out. Several of our crowd, men of 30 or less, have been drinking only a few years. They found themselves as helpless as those who had been drinking 20 years. Unbelievable how much this disease just grows in us if we let it go. You know, it's like the guy that was just did a little story on it. 25 years he laid off. That beast just grew and grew. One of my friends used to say it's like it's like the snake out in the parking lot doing push-ups and just waiting for us to come out. You know, what a dangerous, uh, what a dangerous thing that is. And, you know, it's, I don't know if the snake was doing push-ups. I just said that, but, <laughs> but that's the thing, you know, and that's what, that's what we encounter if we don't go to meetings and we don't be active in our, uh, in our sobriety. We become complacent. Young people may be encouraged by this man's experience to think that they can stop, as he did, on their own willpower. We doubt if many of them can do it, because none will really want to stop. And hardly one of them, because of the the peculiar mental twist already acquired, will find he can win out. Several of our crowd, men of 30 or less, had been drinking only a few years. 
but they found themselves as helpless as those who had been drinking 20 years. To be gravely affected, one does not necessarily have to drink a long time, nor take the quantities some of us have. This is particularly true of women. Potential female alcoholics often turn into the real thing and are gone beyond recall in a few years. Certain drinkers who would be greatly insulted if called alcoholics are astonished at their inability to stop. We who are familiar with the symptoms see large numbers of potential alcoholics among young people everywhere, but try and get them to see it. Um, in the last probably decade or a couple decades, there's been a and still, it's been an association, I believe you would call it, of young people that has uh, that has grouped up together and uh, had conventions. I've been at a couple of them, and uh, they're a lot of fun. And you get to know a lot of people, and people come from all over. And you know, and sometimes they involve, uh, and, and they involve like marathon meetings and. Dancing, you can put your dance, you can put your grooves on, your moves on, all for all the uh, opposite sex. <laughs> but that's the thing is it, it we're there to have fun, you know. And, and you cannot go to meetings all the time, your whole, you know, and do nothing. You have to step out on your own and go to dances and stuff like that. That's why they talk about that uh, living sober book. You know, I used to go to. Uh, I used to go to an Illinois club where they used to have uh, speakers. And then after the speak, it was, on Saturday, it was on a Saturday night, and after the speak, you could stay and dance. And it was a lot of fun. So as we look back, we feel we had gone on drinking many years beyond the point where we could quit on our own willpower. If anyone questions whether he has entered this danger area, let him try leaving alcohol alone for one year. If he is alcohol, if he's a real alcoholic, and here's the question: If he is a real alcoholic, which people say, "Hi, I'm a real alcoholic," and people get pissed about it, it's right here in the book, and very far advanced. There is a scant chance of success. In the early days of our drinking, we occasionally remain sober for a year or more, becoming serious drinkers again later. Though you may be able to stop for a considerable period, you may yet be a potential alcoholic. We think few to whom this book will appeal can stay dry anything like a year. Some will be drunk the day after making their resolutions. Most of them within a few weeks. Wow. Oh, man. That's, that's, a, that's a powerful paragraph right there. Um, for those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. We are assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis 
depends upon the extent to which he's already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. Many of us felt, many of us felt that we had a plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to seize forever, yet we, we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it. This utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity is or the wish. How then shall we help our readers determine to their own satisfaction whether they are one of us? The experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful. But we can think we can render an even greater service to the alcoholic sufferers and perhaps to the medical fraternity. So we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. For obviously this is the crux of the problem. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends, friends who have reasoned with him after a spree which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Of what is he thinking? Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable World War record. He is a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He is an intelligent man. Normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us. Wow. We told him that we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. He made a beginning. His family was reassembled and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost. Through drinking, all went well for a time. But he failed to enlarge, enlarge his spiritual life. To his consternation, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of those occasions, he, we worked with him, revealing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in a serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had a deep affection. They keep saying asylum and stuff like that. You know, one of the things they get committed to is they have to go to detox. And 
Those meetings are really good. I've gone to quite a few of them. And people are just desperate, down and out. And, uh, you know, and if you could support going to your meetings in an asylum or detox, please do so. Because you can help people. When people are in that type of uh, condition, they need to hear from people and see people that have been in the same condition they were at one time, but have but have turned their lives around and uh, turned their lives around, and you know, and became to be became to be not superstars, but uh, definitely a positive uh, force in sobriety that you can just hang on to his coattails and just go right along with him. That's what sponsorship is so great for. Yeah, he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car. On the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at the roadside where they have a bar. I had no intentions of drinking. I just thought I'd get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a, for a car at this place, which was familiar for I had been going to it for years. I had eaten there many times during the months I was sober. I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart. But I felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into into more milk. That seemed to bother me, so I tried another. This started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Here was the threat of commitment. The loss of family and position, to say nothing of that intense mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if he only mixed it with milk. Just gonna say that, you know, with this saying in meetings is we must ch- we must change our our playgrounds and playmates and uh you know what and you know that's the thing about it. If we don't do that we're gonna get drunk again. And uh we have to change. We have to change spiritually. You know, I was just listening to uh to a guy on the international meeting, 24 hour international meeting, talking about, you know, how he went to, how he went back to his uh, reservation, his 
He's Native American. Went back to his reservation. And he couldn't figure out why people were so mad at him. You know, and they just stared at him. You know, and, and it was jealousy. He had a job. He had a car. He was doing well. He didn't live on the reservation. It was pure jealousy, and people get angry. And that's the thing I've experienced it too. I've experienced the guy beating on my car. Cause he was so he wasn't mad at me. He was mad at his situation. He was mad at being an alcoholic and not being able to, not being able to uh, get into getting to uh, rehabilitation. So that's that's the thing. That's that's why. It's so, you know, it's it's kind of double-edged sword that we piss people off, which is sad. But it's also great that we become, we get sober and people start to see that in us. And it makes them jealous. So, you know, take it for what it is. You may think this is an extreme case. To us, it is not far-fetched, for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim data upon consequences. But there was always the curious mental mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our second reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea went off. Next day, we would all ask ourselves, in all earnestness and sincerity, how it could now have happened. In some circumstances, we have gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, depression, jealousy, or the like. But even in this type of beginning, we are obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. We now see that when we begin to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was little serious or effective thought during the period of our premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be. Our behavior is an absurd, incomprehensible respect to the first drink as that of an individual with a passion. Say for jaywalking, he gets a thrill out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of his friendly warnings. Up to this point, you would label him as a foolish chap having queer ideas of fun. Luck then deserts him, and is slightly injured more several times in succession. You would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. Presently, or yeah, presently he is hit again, and this time he has a fractured skull. Within a week after leaving the hospital, fast-moving trolley car breaks his arm. He tells you that he has decided to stop jaywalking for good. But in a few weeks, he breaks both legs. 
All through the years, this continues, this conduct continues, accompanied by his continual promises to be careful or to keep off the streets altogether. Finally, he no longer, finally he can no longer work. His wife gets a divorce and he is held up to ridicule. He, tra- he tries every known means to get the jaywalking idea out of his head. He shuts himself up in an asylum, hoping to mend his ways. But the day he comes out, he races in front of a fire engine, which breaks his back. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? You may think our illustration is too ridiculous, but is it? We who have been through the ringer have to admit that if we substituted alcoholism for jaywalking, the illustration would fit as a fit us exactly. However intelligent we may have been in other respects where alcohol has been involved, we have been strangely insane. It's strong language, but isn't that true? Some of you are thinking, yes, what you tell us is true but it doesn't fully apply. We admit we have some of these symptoms, but we have not gone to the extremes you fellows did, nor are we likely to, for we understand ourselves so well after what you have told us that such things cannot happen again. We have not lost everything in life, through drinking, and we certainly do not intend to. Thanks for the information. That may be true of certain non-alcoholic people who, though drinking foolishly and heavily, at the present time are able to stop or moderate because their brains and bodies have not been damaged as ours were. But the actual or potential alcoholic, with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. That is a point we wish to emphasize and re-emphasize to smash home upon our alcoholic readers as it had been revealed to us out of bitter experience. Let us take another illustration. Man, this really points out the disease, and it really takes the disease apart. You know, and, and the uh, the fire or the trolley car illustration, and the fire truck is still an illustration. It's what we see with the disease is, not how it drives us. It doesn't matter what, you know, it doesn't matter what what we're doing. Alcohol is just a mere symptom. You know, it's just a freaking disease. We're good people with a badass disease is what it is. 
And, uh, you know, and this is what, this is what drives the people, you know, any addiction, gambling, sex, running in front of trolley cars or fire trucks, whatever, whatever gives you the thrill is what we get on board with. It takes the, takes the mental edge off. But anyways, all right, let's go on to Fred. He is a partner in a well-known accounting firm. His income is good. He has a fine home and is happily married and a father of promising children of college age. He has so attractive a personality that he makes friends with everyone. If ever there was a successful businessman, it is Fred to all appearance. He is stable, well-balanced individual, yet he is alcoholic. We first saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where he has gone to recover from a bad case of jitters. It was his first experience of this kind, and he was ashamed of it, much ashamed of it. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, he told himself he came to the hospital to rest his nerves. The doctor intimated strongly that he be, might be worse than he realized. For a few days, he was depressed about his condition. He made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could not do so, in spite of his character and standing. Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic much less accept a spiritual remedy for these for his problem. We told him what we knew about alcoholism. He was interested and conceded that he had some of the symptoms. But he was a long way from admitting that he could do nothing about it himself. He was positive that this humiliating experience plus the knowledge he had acquired would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. We heard no more of Fred for a while. One day we were told that he was back in the hospital. This time he was quite shaky. He soon indicated that he was anxious to see us. The story he told us is most instructive. For here was a chap absolutely convinced he had to stop drinking. We had no excuse for drinking, who, is sta- who exhibited, exhibited splendid judgment and determination in all his other concerns, yet was flat on his back nevertheless. Let him tell you about it. I was much impressed with what you fellows said about alcoholism, and I frankly did not believe it was possible for me to drink again. I rather appreciated your ideas about the subtle insanity which precedes the first drink. I was confident it could not happen to me after what I had learned. I reasoned that I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows that I had been usually usually successful in looking my other huge personal problems that I would therefore be successful where you men failed. I felt I had every right to be self-confident, that it would only be a matter of ex- exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. 
In this frame of mind, I went about my business, and for a time, all was well. I had no trouble refusing drinks, and began to wonder if I had been making hard, too hard work of a simple matter. One day, I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I had been out of town before during this particular dry spell, so there's nothing new about that. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of the perfect day. Not a cloud on the horizon. I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to my mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. I ordered a cocktail in my meal, and then I ordered another cocktail. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me a highball would be fine before going to bed. So I stepped into the bar and had one. Remember, several more that night, and plenty next morning. I have a shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York, and of finding a friendly taxi cab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me for several days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital, the unbearable mental and physical suffering. As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that meeting, that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever. What, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time, I had not thought of the consequences at all. I had commenced to drink as carefully as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I now remembered what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come. I would drink again. They had said that though. I did raise a defense and would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. Well, just what did happen? Just that did happen and more. For what I had learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. I saw all that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in no strange mental blank spots. I had never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew that. It was a crushing blow. Two of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous came to see me. They grinned, which I didn't like so much, and then asked me if I thought myself an alcoholic and if I were really licked this time. I had to concede both propositions. They piled on me 
heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality such as I had exhibited in Washington was a hopeless condition. They cited cases out of their own experience, but the dozen. This process knocked out the last flicker of conviction I could do the job myself. That's why I love that's why I love step three. You know, it's so important to find a higher power. And that's what step three is about, you know. The insanity is in step two. And step three is the higher power. Um I could go on, you know, but we know about step four and step five. We gotta clear away the wreckage of the past. So the sunlight of the spirit can, can shine on our, on, our, on our souls and give us a recourse. And what that leads to is language of the heart. So I'm going on. But anyways, I just I just love this chapter. So then they outline the spiritual answer in program of action, which is a hundred of them had followed successfully. Though I had been only a nominal churchman, their proposals were not intellectually hard to swallow, but the program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. It meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out of the window. That was not easy. But the moment I made up my mind to go through with the process, I had a curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved as in fact it proved to be. Quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. I have since been brought into a way of living infinitely, infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I lived before. My old manner of living was by no means a bad one that I would not exchange at best moments for the worst I have now. I would not go back to it, even if I could. Fred's story speaks for itself. We hope it strikes home to thousands like him. We felt only the first trip, the first nip of the ringer. My alcoholics, most alcoholics, have to be pretty badly mangled before they really commence to solve their problems. Many doctors and psychiatrists agree with our conclusions. One of those men, staff member of a world-renowned hospital, recently made this statement to some of us. What you say about the general hopelessness of the average alcoholic's plight is in my own cor- is in my own correct. I mean, I'm sorry, in my opinion is correct. As to two of you men 
whose stories I have heard, there is no doubt in my mind that you are 100% hopeless apart from divine help. Had you offered yourselves as patients at this hospital, I would not have taken you if I had been able to avoid it. People like you are too heartbreaking. Though not religious people, I have found, I have profound respect for the spiritual approach in such cases as yours. For most cases, there is virtually no other solution. Once more, the alcoholic at certain time, at certain times, has no effective mental defect against the first drink, except in a few rare cases. Neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. Excellent chapter. I just kept reading. I mean, I should could have stopped, but I just wanted to keep going on it because there seems to be a uh, seems to be a lot of people that are struggling even these days. You know, the book is from the 30s, and you look at that's 90 years that we've been getting our asses kicked by this disease. And not seeing the fact that the the, uh, the solution is in the uh, higher power, you know. So that's what that's what's all about, you know. It, spiritual life is not a theory; we have to live it. And you know, it says it all in that chapter. So if nobody has told you, they love you today. I do, and that's with the power of love. Thanks. Hey, it's Ty coming to you from the Verona Sports and Spiritual Library here in Verona, Wisconsin. And we have a lot of good things going on tonight. I'm telling you, a lot of snow falling. But, uh... I'm warm in here, and I know that's a good thing for me. So, what uh, what I'm going to be doing tonight, for this segment anyways, is going to be reading, rejoining the games that changed the game book. And it's Ron Jaworski with Greg Cosell and David David Poit. The Evolution of the NFL on Seven Sundays. And this sport is by Steve Sable at President NFL Films. And it's one of the one of ESPN's uh, best friends, that's for sure, because of all the stuff they've made on uh, on that platform for highlights and so on and so forth. Alrighty, alright, I'm gonna start on page uh, 56. This book is uh, copyrighted as 2010, and it starts off um, from the page 56. On the day before the Steelers trounced Buffalo, 
32-14 in the divisional round. The Raiders rallied during the final seconds to have or to beat the defending world champion Dolphins in the legendary Sea of Hands game. Because it has been billed as Super Bowl 8.5, most observers all but awarded the Lombardi Trophy to the Raiders. Russell recalled how completely the Raiders had been swept up in the euphoria. Madden was quoted as saying, When the two best teams in football, Miami and Oakland, get together, great things will happen. Years later, Madden was still disturbed about the way he and his team handled their win over, over the Miami Dolphins. It was not a championship game. It was just a playoff game. We were so excited and so happy about stopping the streak and beating the Dolphins. I got carried away, and I think the players got carried away, he reflected, because beating Miami was big. They were the only team that had ever gone undefeated. To beat a Shula team in a playoff? Come off a second straight. Coming off a second straight Super Bowl win? We thought we had won a championship. I still look back at that. I think I made a mistake in letting our celebration go on too long. Because the next week we had to play the Steelers in a real championship game. I think that lesson was, we haven't done anything yet. Because when it's a playoff game, and when you've got a championship game the next week, It can be anything else other than just a game. The response from Franco Harris was typical of the entire Steeler team. The Dolphins-Raiders game, I have to admit, was a great game with two great teams. But when Oakland already accepted the crown and said that they're the best, That didn't sit well with us. Even though they beat us earlier in the season, it was like, so what? We weren't at our best at that time. We're now a new team with a new spirit. A few days before, after beating the Bills, the Steelers gathered to begin preparation for their title game in Oakland. Chuck Noll got up to the address the entire squad which was usually a matter-of-fact lead into the week's preparation. A lot of guys didn't pay a whole hell of a, didn't pay a lot of attention, because usually Chuck's style was very businesslike, remembered Ham. He could have been the chairman of the board of a company holding a management meeting for Chuck to go out and say that what he did grabbed the attention of that entire room because it was so unlike him to do this. Joe Green was sitting in front row as Noel began his speech. He didn't raise his voice, but his voice did change when he said the best team in the NFL didn't play yesterday. And the Super Bowl wasn't played yesterday. The Super Bowl is going to be played in two weeks. And the best football team in the league is sitting here in this room. It was out of character for him to say things like that. But it was right on the money 
and it was what we needed. You could feel the level of confidence rise in that room from all the players we called Mel Blunt. Chuck never said anything like... Chuck never said anything like that. But I guess there was something that he saw out there in the Raiders' celebration after beating the Dolphins. That one of the many turning points for the Steelers, he had just come right out and said, it was such a con- with such conviction. After that, we had great practices all week. As the team boarded his charter flight to California, Franco Harris made a promise. I knew we were going to come back a winner, he said, and it felt good. I told my teammates, after the game, when we get back, it'll be early in the morning. We'll have steak and eggs at my place. That's what I told them. Steak, eggs, and champagne. Well, the Raiders won the toss. I'm sorry, the first half, okay, so they're getting into the game right now. In the first first half, first quarter, three Raider offensive possessions. All right. When the Raiders won the toss... They elected to receive, which made perfect sense. They led the AFC in total offense, relying on a near-perfect statistical balance of running and throwing. You can't play a team like Pittsburgh and just do one thing, observed Madden. You have to mix the run with the pass. You have to have confidence when you do run. In the most recent games against the Steelers, the silver and black had piled up huge rushing numbers. Why would today be any different? Man wanted to dominate the sticks, he said to Russell. He wanted to move the ball on the ground. And also he felt Stabler never cared how many yards he threw for. He was quite content to hand the ball off the whole game if it worked. The fun began the final play from scrimmage. The ball is sitting right there and Ernie Holmes steps over it, said Green. Ernie says, Eugene Upshaw. Upshaw finally turns around because he was at the huddle. Ernie looks at him and says, I'm going to kick your ass. The rest was cracked up when we heard this. But when they snapped the ball, it was on. Ernie played a lot of great games, but this one really got his juices flowing. Stabler handed the ball to Clarence Davis, who glided left behind Upshaw. The next thing you see in the front film frame is Holmes leaping over the fray into Davis, joined a split second later by two other Steeler defenders. Oakland picked up four yards on the carry. Unaware, this would be the longest run it would make all day. At the bottom of the pile, Ernie was still busy. I saw Upshaw at a football camp a few months later, recalled Wheaton Hopper. He said to me, who is this Holmes guy? That guy's crazy. First play of the game. He spit right in my face. Ernie was wired up. He was ready to play that game. Next play, Green lined up in a 4-3 stunt formation for the first time. 
This time Davis ran to the right, but with Green trying with I'm sorry, but with Green tying up two linemen, JT Thomas and Lambert had a clear path and made the stop after only a one yard pickup. Facing third and five, Stabler called his first pass. Aligned in the tilted nose position. Green teamed with Holmes on a looping stunt and forced right guard George Bueller to come off Green and react to Holmes. This gave Joe plenty of outside leverage on Jim Otto. He slammed the veteran center to the turf with one hand and then crashed the middle to stack Sable for an 11 air loss, forcing an Oakland punt. We always claimed Green was offside when he lined up in that gap that way, said Flores. He was tilted toward and was such a great player that he usually penetrated. Once that happened, it blows up your double teams or single blocks because you have to worry he'll be in the deep, he'll be in the backfield. But Carson could have not have been more pleased with his defenses for a series. But unfortunately for Pittsburgh, the unit was back on the field in short order. Rookie Glenn Swan fumbled the punt return and the Yank and the Raiders recovered as a Steeler 41. So the defense would have to start from scratch. Given a reprieve, Oakland began with another run. This time it was full Marv Hubbard. I'm sorry, this time it was fullback Marv Hubbard. <laughs> but he was squashed by Greenwood and Lambert for no play, for no gain. On second down, Stabler dropped to throw looking for a nine-yard a nine-year veteran, perennial All-Pro, Fred Bolitnikov, just in front of the Oakland bench. As the ball arrived, Thomas pushed in and nearly intercepted the pass. Both Fred and Madden screamed for defensive pass interference call, but the, but the officials ignored, that, ignored him. The afternoon was young, but this marked the second time that Bolitnikov had been disturbed by a Steeler defender. I'd been in a Pro Bowl with Fred and saw him put on his tar on his chest and his arms, remembered Russell. He was just sprayed all over himself. It was incredible. He could it was incredible he could pick up a ball and it would and it would stick to his elbow. So during warm-ups before the game, before the championship game, I said, Hey, Fred, don't come near our bench. We have some buckets of feathers. <laughs> if you come over there, we're going to tar and feather you with all your stick <laughs> I gave him this look of, I gave him the look, this look of mock seriousness, as if I was really concerned for him. But I was just joking. I made the whole thing up. We didn't really have a bucket of feathers. Now whether that had any impact on the game, I don't know. But he never ran his signature comeback route towards our bench. I know that. Third and ten, um, with third and ten coming up, 
the Steelers went to the nickel coverage, removing Lambert from the lineup and replacing him with rookie safety Donnie Shell. It was a string. It was a strategy that Carson would return to several times throughout the day. Even with the extra defensive backs, Dabur was able to complete his throw over the middle to wide receiver Cliff Branch for a first down at Pittsburgh's 28. It would only be it would be the only first down the Raiders would pick up until late in the half. I just want to say something too. Man, these, these guys the competitors and the uh in these games, I mean, especially with football, they have such a, they have the verbal jab before the physical jabs. It seems like, and um, sometimes I think that I think the verbal jabs are harder to take than the physical jabs. That's the thing; they really mess with each other's minds, and. Uh, yeah, they, they still talk. They call it trash talking today. I don't know what they called it back then. But I know one thing. You know, that was the that was one of the things about that's in this book that I like too. It's the game within the games. Oakland again. Call the running play on the left to the left. With Banasak on the carry, but the white white smothered him for a short gain. The next play was also a run to the same side, this time by Davis. Holmes overpowered Upshaw, reached out with one hand and grabbed Davis, slowing him long enough for Lambert to tackle him after only two yards. On those Steeler teams, I think Ernie Holmes is probably their most underrated player playing Madden. You think of the guys who played in that Steel Curtain line, but Ernie gave us more problems than any of them. On that, on this particular day, Holmes was sporting his trademark crew cut, or his trademark haircut. What little hair remained on his scalp was contoured in the shape of an arrow. Ernie claimed the design helped him stay on the right path to the ball carriers. carriers. It seemed to be working more effectively so far against the Raiders. Facing third and five, Stabler looked for Branch on a square end. But Glenn Edwards knocked it down just as the ball arrived. The Raiders settled for a 40-yard field goal by George Blanda to take a 3-0 lead. They won't score again until deep into the third quarter. But the Steeler offense didn't exactly set the place on fire during his first possession either. Punting after three plays, 3-0 and would be a uh, recurring first quarter trend on each of Oakland's most... Uh, on each of Oakland's next two possessions, the Raiders are off the field after a little more than a Minute. Minute. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thanks to Pittsburgh's suffocating run defense. 
We did a lot of stunts and con games in the 74 championship reveal the Wheaton Hopper. We created a new line of scrimmage on almost every run. The stunt 4-3 created a situation for Lambert where he could go in untouched and make plays. Green was cocknose. Green was a cocknose on that neon neither the center nor guard and block and could block him by themselves. So what you have is two guys blocking green and Lambert running free. To add to Oakland's bewilderment, Carson occasionally mixed in and nickel covers from a 3-4 alignment, swapping homes for extra linebacker Lauren Toes. Or twist. We did this primarily to give the Raiders a different look. Just to mix things up, said Wheatenhopper. After one quarter of play, Oakland's defense was both confused and abused. In 15 minutes, it had generated all of 15 net yards. Alright, on to the second quarter. Of course, you got about you got about two beer commercials and about three of anything else. So, anyways, throughout the first half, the Steelers ran the ball much more efficiently than their Raiders counterparts. But they didn't. But they didn't have much to show for it. Kicker Roy Jarella, named to the Pro Bowl that year, missed a 20-yard field goal after. One sustained drive. However, he later connected on a second try from the same distance, tying the game at 3-3. Despite the score, the Steelers were winning the battles of both field positions, both field position and time of possession. Even with repeated failures in their running game, the Raiders kept plugging. We had to try we had to try to run, said man. You can't just throw on every down. If you give their defensive line a credit card to rush the pet rush the quarterback, then you make it a lot tougher on, on yourself. Four of their drives in the first half began without with runs. And the trend continued even on second down. I charted four second and long situations. In the first half, where Oakland handed off the handed the ball off to a back, the results weren't pretty. Those carries gained one, two, one, and one yard. Something else I saw was that no matter what, the Steelers were committed to running left. What they did was untraditional, observed Duet White. Most teams run to the right. Most people are right-handed. So it's easier to run to the right than to the left. Not the Raiders. In previous games against Pittsburgh, the strategy had worked. They knew it was coming, but we still had success because we did it. We still had success because we did it. There we go. Better than they decided. They're better than they defended, they said, man. I know a lot of people who used to say 
We ran to the left because Kenny Stabler was a left-hander. That had nothing to do with it. It was because we had Art Shell and Gene Upshaw over there. That's why we ran to the left. Oakland. Oakland's left side was Pittsburgh's right side, which meant that White, Holmes, and Russell were going to get the brunt of the action. One time during that game, Ham came in the huddle. He was so berserk, noted Russell. He said, let me take a few shots over on your side. The challenge was there for the three of us to see if we could defeat their best players. Though virtually the entire first half, the Steelers were winning that challenge handily. And they weren't just dominating Shell and Upshaw. Pittsburgh front was clobbering this entire Oakland offensive line. It changed things up from earlier in the year, conceded. I don't. There are some plays I was assigned to block Lambert, but he was keeping me from making my route, my route cutoff point. I couldn't get to him in time. We tried to switch off so the guys closer would block Jack, and I'd take Joe Green. There were decisions that Bueller ordered Upshaw and I had to make pretty quickly. We might get one, but not both of them. Bueller said I was growing particularly discouraged. I know I got conservative in what I was doing, he lamented. lamented. I was thinking too much instead of reacting. I never did lose my pregame jitters. On the outside, the Raiders' offensive tackles were having their own problems. Halfway through the second quarter, Oakland was in a favorable third and short situation, needing probably no more than a foot to move the chains. Davis took the handoff and wasn't even two steps into the play before Greenwood barreled into the midsection and dropped him for no gain. LC was so quick off the ball that right tackle John Villa never even had a chance to lay a glove on him and Oakland was forced to punt again. There's a lot of trash talkers on Pittsburgh, said Otto. They tried to get me riled up. But I just simply, I just simply smile at them, smile back at them. They cursed me out, and I just cracked the hell out of them on that next play. At the end of our runs, Joe Green cussed me out. Then he kicked me square in the testicles. I've never forgotten that. I didn't think that was very nice. Park for the course in a Steeler Raider game, according to Banasak. Hey, that was football. You couldn't play that style now because the rules weren't the same. It was just a different game. There'd be 20 guys tossed out today if they did the stuff we did back then. You know, it's funny is that I see that taking a, uh, there's a soft spot in the game, in the, in the game of football today. And, yeah, it's probably not cool to have all that violence and all that stuff. 
Well, I'll be frank with you. That's what made the game. Today, it's more of a... Uh, I still love the game. Don't get me wrong. But it's almost like a basketball game today. With how much of... Uh, how many how many times you have... You see the plays going for that. You know, that, that there could be a big-time shot on a, on a defense, on an offensive player and the guy has to let up. You know, and that let up might cause a big play, too, which which is the way it is. And, uh, I don't know, people think it's a more exciting game. You know, but there's guys like me who think it's a more exciting game in, in the old days. The Steel Curtain totally shut down the Raiders' running attack. But Oakland's passing game was also having first first half problems. We were playing mostly man along with cover two, which was the only zone we played then, said Wagner. Probably 30 to 40% of our defense in the Raider game was cover two. In cover two, the safeties never backpedaled until we got to a target area. You got there by turning your shoulders and running, not backpedaling. This way you can keep an eye on the receiver, watch the quarterback drop, and figure out where inside the receivers may go be going. If the safeties are deep enough, they can cover half the field just by going left and right. This is what Bud, Bud taught us. To turn and run, a technique you don't see today. It's all about running as fast as you can. How many plays because the defender is half a half a step late? With a little over seven minutes remaining in the the half, the Steelers put together their best drive, highlighted by a pair of Bradshaw completions. A third throw should have given Pittsburgh the go-ahead touchdown, but it didn't count. John Stallworth caught a pass with just his left hand, recalled Green. I think defensive back Nehemiah Wilson grabbed the right hand and Stallworth tiptoed down the sidelines. He caught it in the end zone, but the referee claimed he didn't have both feet in, and it was ruled out of bounds. Disputed plays weren't reviewed by officials back then as they are now, otherwise it would have been overturned because the repeat angles on NBC telecast clearly show that the officials blew the call. Mean Joe didn't, mean Joe didn't bad an eye. The feeling that I had was, it didn't matter. We still gonna beat you. No fussing, no complaining. That's how I felt. The Raiders weren't going to win. Not today. As it turned out, the Steelers didn't get any points following stalwart play. The Raiders' interception brought the ball to midfield with just under two minutes remaining. The Steelers' defense opened opened and covered two, but yielded the longest play of the half. When Stabler hit... Bolitnikov down the left sidelines for a 27-yard gain. Two things went wrong for Pittsburgh and on the play. First, Bunt did not, Bunt did not 
disrupt blood and cause release, which allowed Fred to blow right past him. This prevented Edwards from getting to the sidelines in time with safety help. In addition, Oakland's line finally blocked well enough to neutralize all of Pittsburgh's rushers, giving Ken Snake State Stabler enough protection to find the streaking Bolitnikov. With the ball on the Steeler 23 and still over a minute to go, the Raiders were in business. Their next call would also be a pass, and it turned out to be the most pivotal play of the half. The Raiders broke the huddle, led by the man who'd come to symbolize their franchise during this first 15 years of existence. Many still regard Jim Otto with distinctive numbers 0-0 on his back as the greatest center in pro football history. He never missed a game during his career and was still there battling Pittsburgh rush even though this 36-year-old body was breaking down. My knee ligaments are really a problem. But my plan was to win this game, win the Super Bowl, then have surgery right afterward so I could play in 1975. Otto explained, that would have been my 16th year in the Pro Bowl. I went in, in the Pro Yeah, I'm sorry. So that would have been my 16th year in Pro Bowl. I went into the hospital shortly shortly after we had played the Steelers and had bone graft reconstruction in the joint. My rehab was going fine until I got to training camp. That's where my bone graft came apart. I realized if I tried to play with it, I would not be as effective as I'd always been. I decided that wouldn't be fair to the team, so I retired. It was at that moment in the fifth in the title game where Otto's creaky knees betrayed him, costing the Raiders an almost uncertain touchdown. Stabler connected down the left sidelines with Branch, who had beaten Blunt badly to get open. Cliff was forced out at the one-yard line, but play was nullified by a tripping penalty on Otto. I set off for pass protection, and when I pointed that foot, the pain in my knee was so severe that I had to lift my leg up, he recalled. I was standing on one one foot and went over backwards with the other in the air because I could not stand any pressure on it. And ooh, Joe Green fell over me. It was unintentional trip or leg whip or anything like that. But if you look at the films, you do see Joe trip over me. Oakland was flagged for 10 yards and never recovered. Pittsburgh held on three straight downs and then Blanda's 38-yard field goal try was blocked by Lambert. The ball ended with the score, the, I'm sorry, the half ended with the score still 3-3. Three three. But by every other tangible measure, the Steelers clearly had the upper hand. 
Oakland hit a mass only two first downs. 65 yards of total offense, 18 yards on the ground. They only got 29 yards the whole game. Green bragged. Something like 21 attempts and only 29 yards on the ground. I probably repeated those numbers quite a bit because they were special. The Raiders were just bewildered. They could not believe what was happening to them in terms of our ability to stop the run. This was apparent from a brief exchange between me and Joe and Beeler. Following one play, in the, following one play late in the quarter, Green shouted to the Raider guard, Hey, nice block, George, Beeler replied. I know it's the only one I've, I've got on you today. It was until after his career ended that Green fully, Green could fully appreciate what he and his Steeler teammates were doing to the Raiders that afternoon. You've heard people talk about being in the zone. Joe stated in an interview. There we go. Joe stated in an interview with NFL Films for America's Game Stories series. They don't know what the hell the zone is about. Because you don't live in the zone. You visit the zone probably once in your life. I didn't want to revitalize it. Trivialize trivialize it. I'm sorry. I played 13 years. I was in the zone one time. And that was in the playoff game against the Raiders. And I think our team was in the zone. It didn't matter who we played or where we played them. They were going to lose. That was the most special feeling I ever had playing. Well, let's just, uh, let's stop right there. Page 65. And what, this is a, uh, this is a good chapter. And the only thing I like about it is how it, it shows the, uh, It shows the defense that, you know, how important it was to take take the game over. And just, like it says, just take out, you know, and the running game at any time was very important. No matter if it was passing time game or running game, or a running team, or a passing team. Because, as has been stated in here many times, you know, the pass, the pass when used to set up the run, works more effectively than the run set up to, the, to, uh, to set up to set the pass usually. Um, because of the, uh, you know, it's it's so easy. It, it's always just it says it right, and I believe it's in a Bill Walsh chapter talks about how important that is to uh, to be able to set set the run in place and then pass. Usually, like I said, 
But the pass first, run second is a beautiful idea. Because they're, they're still throwing the defense off because they think, you know, they when they go through and they script those 25 plays like Walsh does, that's when he looks for that, uh, he looks just to offset the, uh, the rush. You know, blitz, they got, you know, run blitzes and keying on the halfbacks and, you know, play, play, play action pass is beautiful in that, in that time of, uh, in that time of the year, but also the seasons. And, uh, you know, that was, that was what got it done. And as we see with the Raiders, that totally, uh, totally messed them up with the, with the excellent defenses because, you know, for some reason, Madden didn't uh, believe me too much in throwing the ball on first down. So, anyways, that's a, that's a great chapter. And, like I said, I'll come back to it. I'm trying to do things in peace work because of the... Uh, trying to get down a bunch of baseball stuff for for us all. And anyways, like I say, nobody told you they love you today. I do. And that's with the power of love.